this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. It's going to be challenging for that adoption to happen while we are in this place where your Bitcoin worth could double or half tomorrow. In tandem to that, these networks have extremely high transaction fees comparable to traditional systems. So in Bitcoin, you're going to pay at least $2 right now per transaction. So say I was going to go down to my Starbucks and, and buy a $3 coffee, regardless, it would cost me $2 in a transaction. So it would actually cost me $5 for that coffee. That's far higher than any credit card that you're going to go and get right now. Even on Ethereum, that transaction fee is going to be around 20 or 30 cents. So I don't see how that's in any way more efficient than the existing systems. And when I like to think about these systems, it's not about whether I believe in the technology or not. It's whether I think the incentives are aligned, the kind of economic incentives. And based on those two things that I just mentioned, the volatility and the transaction cost right now, from a consumer or a merchant perspective, there's just where are the incentives for me to adopt this for my day to day? Good morning. Hello. Good evening, wherever you are in the world. It is Friday the 13th. I've just realized it's Friday the 13th. Happy Friday the 13th of October 2017. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flutter and soon to be Managed Social as well. Hey, thanks for listening to our podcast. If you do listen to this podcast, drop us an email at podcast at itsamonkey.com. Tell us a little bit about yourself. And hey, if you do, maybe we'll send you a limited edition real life scaled down replica of um, a Lamborghini. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We'll send you a limited edition USB, a managed flitter USB. We've got a few left. So for the first three people that email us at podcast.itsamonkey.com, we'll send you a USB and we'll give you a shout out on the show as well. Um, we know we have listeners from all over the world, South Africa, Australia, US, UK. Episode number 107, we have a jam-packed show for you today. Very, very topical interview with Jackson Palmer. Now, Jackson is an Australian chap who's living in Silicon Valley. He works for Adobe and the data sciences side of things. But more interestingly, for our purposes, he's actually the co-founder of Dogecoin. Now, Dogecoin was one of the first alternative cryptocurrencies, alternative to Bitcoin. And um, we actually interviewed Jackson Palm a few years ago and when he was still living and working in Sydney about Dogecoin. Now, I had a chat to Jackson earlier this week about is crypto a bubble? Right. There's a lot of talk. Everyone, everyone's asking, you know, how do I buy Bitcoin? How do I buy Ether? How do I buy different altcoins? And there's a lot of talk that crypto is a bubble. Now, Jackson is having someone who's really was involved um, from the ground up in a, in a pretty successful cryptocurrency that still exists. We chatted to him about is crypto a bubble. Now, interestingly, um, so we'll be getting to that later on in the show. Now, interestingly, over the last day, Bitcoin has hit a new high. It's crashed through, sorry, or burst upwards through the $5,000 US level. So it's nearly at $5,400. Now, bear in mind, not more than six months ago, Bitcoin was about $800, right? Now, you can see why everyone, when they hear about these returns, just goes, holy dooly, like I need to get some of those so $5,400 from about $800 in about seven, eight months. Wow. You must look at this graph. I'm looking at this graph as we speak, and it is the, the craziest graph. Now, of course, this could all come crashing down 
no one knows, including Jackson, although he had some he, he's got a very educated view. So we're going to be talking about that later on in the show. We had an elaborate view and it was a fascinating chat. Before then, as usual, we're going to talk a bit about some tech news. And with me uh, for that is my co-host who is based in Whistler, Canada for the moment. She is uh, lucky enough to to work remotely. She's Apparently, she's working for a fantastic company that just gives her all these freedoms and, you know, lets her do her thing. Kate Frappel, thanks for joining us from Whistler, Canada. <laughs> no worries. It's good to be back again. You're supposed to say yes. Yes. Fantastic See. company. It is a fantastic company. <laughs> except except you got to put up with me, but um, <laughs> I try to stay out of it. I've, I've, learned, I've learned if you hire right, it, generally if you stay out of their way, it, it's, it actually serves the greater interest. So I actually try to stay out of the team's way and just take the annoying parts of the business like admin and, and um bookkeeping and accounting and, and, and bigger issues, but just letting them do their work. But uh, anyway, enough of that. Thanks for joining us. Episode 107. Some news stories before we get straight into Jackson's interview, because it is a long one. There's a new podcast delivery, uh, sorry, discovery. Is it a service or it is a service linked with a, a piece of hardware, Kate? No, it's a it's an app. I believe, and it's, uh, it's app, called right. Castbox, and it's just raised sixteen million in funding, uh, and their whole aim is to fix podcast discovery. So they want to be the YouTube of podcasts. Now, podcast discovery is an interesting. I mean, people have tried to solve this for ages, so much so, in fact, before Twitter, Ev. And um, one of the founders and creators and investors of Twitter, he was involved with the podcast discovery type of app. It's, it's a problem that's existed for so long. Um, iTunes are the only one that's uh, realistically have some surfacing, you know, that that's why it's such a big deal. People like to get rated on iTunes, etc. Are they talking about anything special? I mean, what's their approach? $16 million. What's their thinking? Have they mentioned anything more about this app? So, Basically, this funding is going to be used on marketing, uh, original content, and just hiring some engineers. Uh, they're based in Beijing at the moment, um, but all the podcasts and things are in English. I think there there is talk that they're going to introduce multi-languages, though. So you say they're going to create original content? Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that that's an interesting angle. Um, so in a way, they're sort of taking a bit of the, the Netflix approach where they're going to do some original content. It's an interesting, do they specifically talk about podcasts themselves, not just general audio content? Uh, they specifically reference podcasts in the TechCrunch article anyway. Um, they say, I guess one of the main point of differences is they can search uh, a user's history and like track their listening behavior and then make recommendations as well. And you can also share it on social media and stuff like that. The problem if you force people into an app, like I mean, there's apps like Stitcher, for example, right? And that's mm. a that's a podcast listening and discovery app. The challenge is if you need to force people into an app to listen to their podcasts, you're back to a similar story about people needing using iTunes. And if they use iTunes, then they can get good recommendations. But what about people listening to podcasts directly on the website or listening to podcasts on a podcast player or listening to podcasts through Spotify? It's 
it's a high bar to get people. You have to provide a huge amount of value. I mean, I've subscribed to probably 30 podcasts in my podcast player. What's going to be the benefit? I'm, I can't even get through my existing list of 30. What's really going to be the benefit of me joining a podcast app that is going to surface some other podcasts? I, I don't know. I don't feel, I don't feel that it's, it's worth really the effort. I can tell you what would be interesting, Kate, now just thinking out aloud, yeah. would be there's so many podcasts and just like our podcast, our podcast, if we had the resource, could probably be edited down to a half hour podcast, but that's a lot of work. It's probably at least half a day's work, which we just don't have the resources to. What for? What would be interesting would be an app that could actually curate interesting parts of podcasts and almost like a Spotify radio Right. So I, I choose like the tech radio and it gives me five minutes or 10 minutes snippets from different podcasts, the best highlights. Um, and that way it sort of curates, uh, helps me curate and, and listen to my 30 podcasts that could somehow pick the best bits from this week and play them all to me over one or two hours. Um, they would need some human intervention, but I don't know. That, that would help me. That, I, I would give that a go. That's true. That's true. It is, it is quite hard when you think about it, like trying to discover new podcasts and, and you know, you kind of, you try and skim through them to get to the interesting parts and, and see if you're going to like it, if it's worth subscribing. If you could get like a, um, a summary of that, yeah, I think that's something I would enjoy that as well, actually. I've always, uh, I was thinking I'd love to do a podcast every week that, that um, I listen to such a diverse range of podcasts on ranging from human behavior to business to um, you know, people in prisons and all sorts of things. And I'd love to, I'd love to, and there's some real gems in there. Um, I've actually been listening to, out of all people, would you believe, Oprah's podcast, Kate? Yeah. And she does a session, I think it's a TV program called Soulful Sundays or something like that. And she and they bundle it into a podcast as well. And she has the who's who on there, and they really edit it tightly down to half an hour. And it's fantastic. Some of the guests have just been quite remarkable. Um, so I, I've never watched or listened to Oprah really in my life, and this is actually the first time that I've actually listened to her. And she's she's pretty good. I can see why she's she's a very authentic, smart person. That. Um, it's conversational, interesting, yet uh, not fluffy. So it's she makes it look very easy, but she's good at what she does. Definitely. Yeah, I haven't watched too many of her um, TV shows, but I, I do know that a lot of people love her and she has some really great content. Going back to CastBox as well, I just re-had a look at some of the, I think it's paragraphs in this article. It says it uses natural language processing to let the listeners search for keywords and topics across more than 50 million episodes. So it's doing an in-audio search to find sections of audio and let you sort of search the audio as easy as if you were sort of going through text, for example. Okay, so that's, that might that's be really the, interesting. the bigger point of difference yeah. here. Yeah. That might be really, uh, th that's really interesting and that would be really interesting tech. Um, it would still, I mean, from a user's perspective, still very tricky, right? Because we, I mean, if you're searching in the podcast, say for, blockchain would it surface yeah i mean it, it would it surface web pages 
of that podcast. It can't really just surface a clip that you would have to listen to. You'd need the ability to somehow scan them. And mm. so you can pick just like you do with the web search, right? So it'll be interesting actually how they execute on this. It would be interesting. Uh, yeah, they have, they have some screenshots on the article, but it does look just very similar to a normal podcast app, to be honest, like iTunes. Well, that'd be interesting. I mean, I think there is a use case to be able to search through the audio. That would be, which currently doesn't happen unless people put transcripts in. And even then, Google doesn't seem to like to index transcripts very highly because it's sort of they see it as just a data dump, you know. So it's it's actually quite tricky to search for podcasts, notoriously so. That's why people are trying to solve all these issues. Anyway, um, is it is it live on Android or Apple yet, or is it still in? Um, I'm not too sure. I'm not really too sure. I mean, it, it definitely looks like a product. They've got designs. I mean, it was founded in 2016. Okay. Uh, so but I personally so haven't uh, tried it to see if it's sort of out there and being used. Okay. Well, maybe we'll, we'll have a look. Um, Instagram has uh, launched. They don't, they don't launch new features very often. They're very... They're very selective and very very measured about the new features that they launch, and it's worked very well for them, um, as opposed to Facebook, which which just tends to iterate at the rate of knots. I saw today in my Facebook feed that suddenly Facebook are are making it visible posts in groups and all the comments to certain posts, which is a real pain. So say you're as, as a member of I don't know. Sydney social group or whatever it is and and someone's posted something that there's a lot of comments on suddenly today on one of these posts all the comments are in the feed and you've got to scroll all the way down by default it's really weird I'm sure they'll fix it because it's yeah. really not a good user experience but the point being that Facebook Facebook just iterates in a very non-measured manner but Instagram on the other hand it's much much more measured and they've rolled out a, a polling feature is it yeah, so I have to say lately, like maybe the last month or two, I've noticed quite a few sort of tweaks and changes to Instagram. So I feel like traditionally it didn't change much and now Facebook's mm-hmm. going gangbusters and sort of applying its same principles to Instagram, I think. So anyway, the, the latest feature is a a polling sticker, I guess. So in the Instagram stories, so it's sort of the Snapchat clone, you can take a picture and then you have the option to create a sticker with a poll. So it's basically two buttons. Um, the example they give on the website, for example, is, you know, there's a girl and she's got two donuts. One's plain and one has sprinkles. And then underneath that she puts the sticker, plain or sprinkles. And people watching it can vote by tapping on the respective buttons. And then she gets to see the, the stats from that on her end. Interesting. I mean, Twitter's had a polling feature for a while. Facebook obviously does. So um, I think it could be really, really useful, especially for Instagram, especially Instagram. There's a lot of fashion related things, food related things. I mean, it's a visual platform and people have a lot of opinions about these things. So definitely. They added um, another feature alongside that, um, which is an eyedropper tool. So um, so traditionally, like in Photoshop, for example, the eyedropper, you hover over a color and it gives you the hex code and tells you exactly what that color is. Um, you can now do that inside Instagram stories. So you might take a picture of a sunflower and if you want your text or your 
sticker or something to be exactly the same shade of yellow as the flower, you can use an eyedropper tool to do that. Plus, the other thing they added too is a um, like an alignment feature. So when you're dragging stickers across your story creation, little rulers appear to, so that you can help center it and and not sort of hide it underneath some of the static uh, elements that always show up in your story. So like your profile image and your name is always in the top left. Um, now they're sort of telling you not to put things there because it's going to get interrupted once you publish it. Yeah, look, Instagram's going at the rate of knots. I mean, it's sort of, it's a little bit sad when you see these products that started out so simple and elegant and one tracked and it's, it's, they always land up being such complex products. I mean, you take even Google AdWords, it used to be the, and Google Analytics, that used to be the simplest, most easy to understand products. And boy, were they lovely to use because it was just so straightforward and, now, wow, it's like a rocket ship in there, right? <laughs> Especially AdWords. Wow, it's like, but anyway, I suppose that's the nature of the beach. Probably the first motor car was also relatively simple and just drove slowly at five kilometers an hour and had a simple steering wheel. And now you get into some of the new cars and they've got auto parking and, and you know, electronic traction and all sorts of things so i suppose it's just it's just technology that's the way we move forward with it so maybe uh maybe i'm getting old and nostalgic but anyway that's instagram the new features so we're going to take a short break and then we're going to play an interview with jackson palmer from dogecoin about the future of cryptocurrency blockchain bitcoin etc where to from here so stick around we'll be back after this break Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Manage Flitter can help you quickly and cheaply build an organic following on Twitter? Let me explain in six easy steps. Step one, find new prospects on Twitter with Power Mode, Manage Flitter's advanced Twitter search feature. Step two, easily filter and sort results to find the most relevant Twitter accounts for you to follow. Step three, follow these Twitter accounts using Manage Flitter's simple interface. Step four, unfollow accounts that do not follow you back within 14 days. Step five, watch your Twitter follower numbers grow as high quality accounts follow you back. Step six, rinse and repeat to maintain consistent organic Twitter account growth. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that we talk about tech startups, entrepreneurship, everything relating to this very fast-changing industry of ours. And also, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that we've been talking more and more about uh, the blockchain technologies and cryptocurrency. And uh, we spoke first spoke about these technologies a couple of years ago when it was first in its infancy. And this technology has really been gaining momentum, so much so that I even have some of my 
I see some of my yoga friends that can, with all due respect to them, some of them can barely um, switch on a computer. And I've seen quite a few of them saying, um, how do I invest in Bitcoin? So it's really hit the mainstream. And um, a few years ago on the podcast, uh, we were lucky enough to chat, chat to Jackson Palmer, who's the creator of Dogecoin. One of the uh, original altcoins, so to speak. And uh, we chatted to Jackson a few years ago. And Jackson has since moved to the Bay Area. And I'm excited to say we've managed to uh, twist his arm to come back on the podcast um, and uh, to talk a little bit more about uh, the latest goings-ons in crypto. Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I think this is the third time I've been on. So uh, always happy to talk to you guys. Third, which I think is a tie record. I think we've had one or two other people in third. So uh, <laughs> no, I really, really appreciate um, really appreciate the time. We spoke to you in the previous podcast about the latest MacBook Pro or MacBook. I can't remember what they had labeled it. Um, That's right. You still using that machine? No, no, I uh, I ended up returning it and getting the uh, the previous model actually the the 2016 version because mm -hmm. um, I, I there was just all sorts of build quality issues with the new Macs. Unfortunately, I think Apple are having build quality issues these days, so still running the old school machine with uh, without a touch bar. It's um. It's very common in our industry, especially on the hardware side of things, when they finally do get something right, you want to just stick to it because it's actually not <laughs> that easy to get robustness and stability. Um, I suppose in software as well, really, it's, it's you know, we, we take it for, we don't, you know, companies have got it so right, companies like Facebook and Apple, that we take it for granted how difficult it is to get consistent quality, both in hardware and software. Yeah, it's about reliability. That's the thing. I just need something that I can take with me anywhere I go and just make sure that when I open that lid up, it's going to boot up and work fine. So, yeah. Jackson, there was a New York Times article last month by Kevin Roos about a cryptocurrency bubble. Now, there's these two camps. It's, you know, everyone's talking about crypto, Ethereum. Bitcoin, the price is bouncing around all over the place. You're one of the creators or the creator of Dogecoin. I believe you, you're no longer actively involved with Dogecoin? No, I haven't been actively involved in its development um, since around 2015, actually. Mm -hmm. I kind of backed away from um, not only Dogecoin, but the whole cryptocurrency space for a while there. So uh, for much of 2015 and 2016, I was um, still involved in decentralized technology, um, but less so on the cryptocurrency side of things. So talk to us a little bit about this this crypto bubble, or at least what some people are calling a bubble. What are your views on where we're at? I notice you've been putting a lot of YouTube videos together explaining mm -hmm. blockchain technology because of course it's 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 really I sort of joke that there's only sort of six people in the world that truly understand you know blockchain technologies <laughs> um, <laughs> everyone everyone's too scared to admit that they don't really understand how it works right through to the, um, yeah. the the foundation so you're obviously helping trying to spread knowledge about what's going on which is great but what's i mean you've you seem to be very unequivocal in the fact that we are in a bubble and this hype uh -huh. is all going to end in tears 
Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, I was I was kind of out of the space for a bit in 2015 and 2016, mostly because um, I think Bitcoin went through a, a former gold rush back in 2013 and 2014, where we saw a lot of development, we saw a lot of merchant adoption, um, and then there was kind of the famous uh, Bitcoin crash in 2014, where the price, you know, in the space of a couple of weeks, went from a thousand dollars, which was its peak, back down to around uh, two hundred dollars US. And um, through that time, I kind of learned a lot, um, and I, I learned a lot of the limitations of the software. I learned a lot about the community that was involved and drawn to the software as well, which was very illuminating. And I think the its time in the sun kind of went away then, um, and and that's when I started to kind of back away from the the space. But what what happened in the in the kind of years after that during 2015 and 2016 is a new cryptocurrency um, going by the name Ethereum. Uh, which some people have probably heard of, came on the scene um, and kind of shook things up a little bit. Uh, and the difference with Ethereum is that um, in addition to being a currency that you can trade around with people, you can also easily create other currencies on top of it. So, you know, in a couple minutes, you can easily split, you know, spin up whatever you want. You could have It's a Monkey Coin on Ethereum uh, pretty easily. And so because of this, because of the reduction in kind of barrier to entry to creating um, new coins or tokens, as they're called on Ethereum, a lot of people started firing these things up and raising money through those uh, through something called an initial coin offering. So they might spin up a, and it's it's a monkey token and then, you know, they'll have a hundred million of them, but they'll sell them for a dollar each. Right. Um, and it's a way for that company to raise money. Um, so as I started seeing this happen, and this this only really started to kind of take off earlier this year, around April of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, but as this started to to happen, I started seeing it suddenly pop back up on my on my Twitter timeline and Facebook a lot more often. And I started getting these flashbacks to to what it was like in in 2013 and 2014, back when I did Dogecoin, back when cryptocurrency was in its first gold rush. But this time, I saw a lot more money pouring into it. We're we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into the space, um, into these ICOs. And so when I saw it, you know, this obviously isn't my first rodeo. And so I immediately thought that what, what really damaged people last time, there was one of these little gold rushes was uh, a lot of the people putting money in didn't necessarily have a good understanding of how things worked. So they were just, they had that FOMO effect, right? That fear of missing out. And they were just putting their money in purely because of that. So um, I kind of jumped back into the space and started doing this YouTube channel. Um, you can check it out at youtube.com forward slash Jackson Palmer. But it's really just educational. Um, I don't monetize any of the stuff because really what I'm trying to do is just explain how the technology works to people so they can understand that this, this isn't some magical new thing. Um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency has been around for uh, nearly 10 years now. And um it does have some some weaknesses. There's a lot of room for improvement. And so what I want to really try and do is just build awareness and understanding um, so people aren't putting their money into something they have no real knowledge about. Don't you think, though, that um, bubbles, in, in a way, I mean, it is a case of that, you know, there, there could be a lot of money that could be lost. But, um, you know, the dot-com bubble, in, in a way, it Good did come out of that. I mean, there were a couple of companies like Amazon that survived it. Very, very few companies that survived it. But I mean, the the actual underlying technology, the blockchain technology, seems to offer 
so much. I mean, is this your exact argument why we have to be careful of a bubble? If that is that if a lot of people actually get burnt, it could actually kill credibility and actually have the unintended consequence of actually um, not being able to get funding for blockchain type investments when, when a lot of people have been burnt already by the industry. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's two there's two components to that. I think the the first being that um, a lot of so so there are some legitimate companies like you mentioned, like there were in the internet um, boom, that uh, are doing legitimate work to try and improve the technology. And I still do believe in the underlying technology. I think it's extremely important that that we build this technology. But the I would say that you know upwards of ninety percent of the companies that are currently doing ICOs aren't necessarily motivated by by that desire to drive forward the technology. They're more motivated by um, getting in and making some money while they can. So it's more of a, a, a jump in and get cash grab kind of opportunity rather than it is, yes, we're going to move this whole industry forward. Uh, and so I think the challenge, and this this happened in the, in the dot-com bust as well, is that a lot of people that are putting their money in are simply doing are putting into companies that don't really even have a tangible product yet. They're they're selling a promise of a product, uh, and this is what happened back in the dot com bust, where uh, companies were ICOing every IPOing, I should say, every week, and these companies were just selling a sales pitch or a PowerPoint deck. They weren't really selling more than that. I think the second part of this whole equation is that if you get enough people putting that money in, then uh, and then when it pops, um, a bunch of people are going to end up being hurt and losing money, which could have a negative kind of uh, association impact on, on Bitcoin, on Ethereum, on the whole space. Now, I think there are a lot of similarities if you, if you kind of look at this bubble compared to something like the dot-com bubble. But I think one of the chief differences is that the dot-com bubble, a lot of that money was coming in through people that had the capital. So, um, large investors, there at least was some regulation around it. So the people that were losing their money at the end of the day were typically people who were already rich enough to be able to take a hit. It wasn't kind of just regular people. Um, in some cases, they were friends and family, but mostly it was people that could afford to lose money. In the case of Bitcoin and, and this bubble, um, or I should call it the Ethereum bubble because that's really what it is, the people that are putting in money, just like you, know, you mentioned at the beginning in the intro, are your yoga friends. Uh, and your yoga friends probably aren't millionaires. They're probably, you know, they have some money and they probably can't afford to lose it all um, overnight if we have a similar crash to what we had in 2014 with Bitcoin, where 80% of the, the value uh, left the industry overnight. So I think the challenge will be that um, it won't just be institutional investors being hurt when this bubble crashes because Ethereum is is highly unregulated. It's meaning that a lot of people that that can't essentially lose that money and putting money into it. So I've seen a lot of a lot of people mortgaging their houses or refinancing their their retirement funds um, to try and put into crypto, which is obviously an incredibly risky thing to do. It's it's this it's the same as taking out all your superannuation or retirement and going and putting it on black at, at the casino. And so I think that the consumer impact could be a lot larger, even though the overall you know, market cap is, is is only worth a couple hundred billion dollars. I think the impact of that couple hundred billion dollars is going to be more broad reaching um, in terms of the number of people it affects because of um, how unregulated the space is. Only invest in crypto what you can genuinely afford to lose. 
and absolutely really think about that if you are going to invest in crypto. You quoted in 2015 as saying um, that the cryptocurrency market increasingly feels like a bunch of white libertarian bros sitting around hoping to get rich and come up with half-baked buzzword-filled business ideas. That, that sounds like the whole tech startup industry, Jackson. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and, you know, it's funny that I said that back in 2015 when, you know, really the, 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 the first gold rush was kind of kind of coming to an end. I think what happened was that the, the first gold rush came and kind of went so quickly around the 2014 period that what I saw back in 2015 was the kind of lingering people left around with not much technology, but they were good salespeople and they were kind of looking for a platform to try and raise money. But, you know, traditional investors here in the Bay who would usually invest in seed rounds for legitimate companies do some due diligence on these people and they're like, okay, we're not going to put our money into that. So I think ICOs and Ethereum have, have really helped these people who wouldn't wouldn't pass the muster in in terms of uh, traditional tech start getting into raising money through this unregulated market and that's kind of that kind of quote that that you that you said um, has kind of come true in a way but on a grander scale because you said it's obviously a lot like traditional tech right there's a lot of companies here in the Bay Area that that again don't have much of a tangible product they they go and they raise a seed fund they raise a million dollars and then you know they burn through that in a year and then there's you never hear from them again i think that's true i think what's happening in crypto though is those people who can't pass the grade um so kind of like the c-level people are the ones that are then going and saying well if i can't raise money from the uh, traditional investors because my product's not good or doesn't exist i'll go into an ico instead and the challenge is that, um, you know, I think bubbles can be good in, in terms of increasing awareness and also moving forward the technology. But in this case, I think, um, and, and also I should mention smart investors, there's lots of money to be made in a bubble as well. Volatility is where some people thrive. But the problem is that these, these ICOs aren't just raising what would be a traditional seed round here in the Bay Area. They're not raising, you know, 500K or a million dollars and then going off and building their thing. Some of these these ICOs are first-time people, you know, people in their early 20s who've never run a business before, and they're raising upwards of $10 million. Some of them are raising upwards of $100 million. Um, there, there have been multiple ICOs since April this year that have, have raised in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's a bunch of 20-year-old kids who've never really done anything with business before. And, you know, you can tell that, you know, traditional venture capital in the Bay Area wouldn't give a bunch of kids – hundred million dollars. That's that's crazy, and it sets their valuations of these companies and you know around you know half a billion dollars for some of these companies that have no tangible product and some very often an inexperienced team with no track record. So I think that's the difference between traditional tech. I do think there is a lot of this kind of um, vaporware and 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 nonsense going on in traditional tech, but I think ICO takes that and kind of perverts it even further, um, where it's letting the worst of the worst get through. That's not to say there aren't legitimate businesses. That's the one thing that I always get kind of dinged on. A lot of people criticize me. They say, oh, why are you so down on this? And I'm not down on this. I think there are legitimate companies right now, but I think they're overwhelmingly kind of outnumbered versus uh, the number of uh, scams or companies that probably won't exist in, in 12 months. And of course, even if you have a business that's funded on an ICO, you still need to, the, the, the normal dynamics of business still exist, i.e. eventually you have to make a profit, money in's got to be greater than money out and in the dot-com sort of bubble people 
temporarily forgot that and there were people had a sense that business models will be different and everything's changed and the laws of physics don't exist anymore. But of course, the laws of physics will always be the laws of physics. The equivalent of gravity in the business um, environment mm -hmm. will always be there, including in the ICO space. So eventually, no matter how you funded the business, eventually it's got to become sustainable. Somehow your balance sheet has to make sense, right? It does. And I, I think, you know, with, with the dot-com boom, that because regulation does exist, I think there was some more oversight um, in regards to why that popped. I think the the challenge with cryptocurrency, and, and you know, even though I'm calling this a bubble, it could go on for another year or two easily. The, the, the challenge is that because it's highly unregulated, as you say, you know, in, in traditional business, when, when investors give you money, there is a... Um, they, they receive equity, right? And there is an expectation that that business will then, you know, you, the people will go away and spend that money that they received developing it. And then eventually that, that company will have a valuation um, and those investors will get back a return on investment in some sense. So they'll, um, you know, if the company sells, they'll, they'll get paid out for the equity they own. In the case of crypto, the, the difference is that when you do these ICOs, the tokens are issued immediately, unlike equity. So, the the tokens are immediately liquid, which means those investors, the people that invest in it, can easily, as soon as they've bought the tokens, go and uh, sell them on a secondary market or exchange, uh, which means a lot of these cryptocurrencies are essentially um, being turned into, I shouldn't call them cryptocurrencies, these ICOs are, are just pump and dump schemes where the early investors, because they can go and sell their tokens um, or their equivalent of equity, you know, a, a day after they bought it, um, it's unlike equity, right? Um, where, you know, you usually have a lock-in period. Um, you can't just go and tank the market by selling it. So I think that's that's the big difference there. And the other difference is that who's holding these people accountable is the other thing. So say you sold $100 million in, in crypto tokens. Most of these companies, if they're registered businesses at all, um, usually have an offshore entity somewhere in the Caymans or, you know, some, you know, lots in Switzerland and random parts of the world. So say in 12 months they don't deliver a product and they've just kind of run off and bought a bunch of Lamborghinis with $100 million they raised. Who's going to regulate that? Like who's going to come down on them and say, oh, you guys, you know, lied and deceived, you know. I, I think that's a real challenge that kind of the law doesn't really exist there. And, you know, I don't know. I think the SEC will definitely get involved in the U.S. at least. But um, how how broad reaching is their is their scope? Are they able to kind of go to companies that were incorporated in Switzerland and say, well, you raised, you know, 100 million dollars in, in funny Internet money? I think it becomes very hard to hold people accountable. Whereas when you have equity that's issued traditionally in uh, venture capital over here for a tech startup, usually the company is incorporated in the U.S. Um, and there's a very clear structure and, and, and kind of accountability and responsibility. I mean, when Facebook listed and then it's the share price weakened quite a lot, there was a lot of talk and I read a lot of articles about similar scenario where grandmothers had invested a lot of their money into Facebook stock and now, you know, they, they, it, it had been wiped out. I can't remember what the percentage was, but it's, you know, obviously Facebook's way up now and, and hopefully those grandmothers held on to the stock. But there was definitely mm -hmm. a lot of talk about, you know, to what level does the average person in the street understand the risks about mm -hmm. what they're investing in? Yeah, you know? yeah. The thing with like a traditional IPO um, is that regular people are – 
kind of barred from participating. To 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 participate um, in those kind of sales, you typically have to be an accredited investor in the U.S., which means you have to have over a million dollars in assets um, or earn more than I think two hundred fifty thousand a year. So there is some kind of qualification to invest. And, you know, it's the same on angel list syndicates. If you want to go and invest as, a, as an angel, you have to have this kind of capital. You have to be accredited. Um, so that kind of makes sure that it's not just average people on the street, typically. But I think the other thing with, with say, Facebook, for example, or I, I think it's probably the same with um, Snap and Blue Apron, all these companies we've seen IPO recently. Typically, the executives at those companies and the founders of those companies have lock-in agreements um, whereby they legally can't dump their stock on the market immediately following the, the IPO, right? Because that would crash the price. And that's good because that 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 tries to protect the price of the stock and protect investors um, from people who hold maybe 30% or 50% of the company from, from, from cashing out. In in ICOs, that, that regulation doesn't exist. There's no there's no laws around this um, unless the SEC comes in and says yes, they're all securities. So there's nothing stopping you know, these ICOs where they, they keep 60% of the tokens and they only sell 30%, there's nothing really stopping except for their word, them stopping going and, and, and dumping that stuff on the market and cashing out. So I, I think because of its unregulated nature, that's what's helped all of this kind of prop up. But it also, you know, versus traditional investment, I think there's a, there's a much greater risk involved. And of course, the stock market, as well as the laws around venture investing, have evolved over time. It's a mature framework, I guess, mm-hmm. where they've they've gone through the cycles of the problems and and um, frauds and et cetera, et cetera. So it's the frameworks are pretty well established. Where ICOs, it's just new ground. But I think what's the wild west? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the wild west. But I think, don't you think it is interesting that this is a sign that the venture model is ready to to take a new form that I, I mean, sure, people, they can be opportunistic um, people, etc. But it's also indicative that there, there are a lot of people that do want to build businesses that do want funding for businesses. And, um, you know, maybe want to reduce, you know, maybe the, the, the time is right to somehow reduce friction in funding for businesses, and it's it, inherently it is a risky game, but this yep. is a sign of all the pent up demand for people wanting to build businesses. I think absolutely. I think we're living in an age now where it's far easier for any to be, anybody to become a creator. Anybody can go in, you know, shoot video or start a business or get into development. Um, the, the barrier to entry is becoming increasingly lower and lower and lower. I think the in terms of raising money, I think there you're right in that venture capital has improved. And I think in terms of issuing securities um, or raising money, there's actually a lot of affordances, especially in the U.S., around exemptions um, from being classed as a security. There's you know a couple of um, different exemptions. There's one called Reg A plus, where you can actually raise I think it's up to 50 million U.S. You know, uh, without having to go through being, uh, you know, a listed security and everything like that. So, and you can actually sell to unaccredited investors, I believe. So, there are ways to do this completely legally. And I think the challenge that I have, like, I I understand the argument that says, look, ICOs help enable this stuff way easier. I think the existing system does provide a lot of that. Um, And I think a lot of this stuff was put through when the Obama uh, administration was in, and it's helped, I think smaller businesses. And so what that makes me question 
is okay what are the businesses that are that are popping up in ICOs and i think the challenge the challenge that exists is that i, I what is the incentive for them to do an ICO versus raising US dollars right to to build their business i think in many cases i think what has attracted people to ICOs is the unregulated nature of it and the ability for their token to appreciate in, in price and be immediately uh, liquidated. And so I, I think it's going to be interesting, right? Because like, say say you, you are of the opinion that, okay, the ICOs just help with the transfer of capital to, to these people because it's cryptocurrency and it's easy to, to move around. Would the people that are currently involved in ICOs be perfectly happy if if regulation were laid on top of the of that framework, and I don't know if that's true. I, I think I think there's a large portion of people that are conducting ICOs right now who are doing it because they don't want the regulation there. And when people start to do things that are where their their chief incentive to do it is to skirt regulation um, and accountability, then I start worrying about well, is this a legitimate business? So, like I said, I think there are legitimate businesses in there. I think the ones that I think are legitimate are the ones that aren't raising crazy amounts like, you know, $300 million for, you know, some small business that they're building. Um, I think it's the ones that are just raising what would be, you know, equal to, a, you know, a, a seed or, a, you know, a, a round, like a series A round here in, in, in Silicon Valley. I think what, um, as a society, we do have to look at doing is actually developing a legal system that can be more agile and more responsive because the cycles of technological evolution have become so much shorter that we need to be able to respond with the legal frameworks a lot quicker. We can't wait for another five years before we start looking at ICOs, etc. And we have to approach it in a very pragmatic way. We don't want to we don't want to choke off innovation, but also we don't want to just be the wild west as well. And it just seems like whether it's um, discussion about AI and the impact of um, AI and robotics or whether it's crypto, it's just I know even in Australia, the debates on and the discussion is just not quite happening. Yeah, I agree. I think systems should be more and more agile. I think it's, it's a delicate balance that you have to walk and it, it's very hard to maintain that balance because especially in cryptocurrency um, and decentralized systems, there is it's hard to regulate. Right. Because of its very nature, it's hard to enforce, you know, even if regulation came into play with something like a smart contract on Ethereum. How do you enforce that? There there is no way to technically enforce that that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the 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 benefits, I guess, um, of the traditional paper based systems that we have is that because it's slow and because it's cumbersome, it results in regulation easily being enforced on top of that. But it, the the cryptocurrency system is so fast paced and easy to move money around that uh, you can't do that. And yeah, I, I think it is a balance. You don't you don't want to you don't want to stomp out the innovation by no means. But at the same time, you have to be aware that whenever there is a new technology, um, a new enabling technology like this, or a new kind of craze. There is going to be a huge attraction to, to bad actors into that space. And I think, um, unfortunately, in many cases, that's what we're seeing in cryptocurrency right now. People are taking advantage of it. Um, and not everybody is kind of playing by their own kind of self-governing self rules that the space would, would like to think they have. 
few days ago, Russia announced that they are interested in looking at a national cryptocurrency. And of course, the only country before that that I'm aware of that's looked at starting a, their national cryptocurrency is Estonia. I can see huge benefits for a country. I mean, maybe the citizens and especially the libertarians will not be happy with it because it's all the tracking ability and data that could be gleaned from that. What are your thoughts on having a national cryptocurrency? Yeah, it's interesting. I think rumors about, you know, X country is going to do a cryptocurrency. It comes around all the time. Um, I've heard it for about five different countries now. I think Liechtenstein was rumored to be looking into it as well. I think it's interesting. I think it, I don't necessarily think that it would need to take place in the form of being a cryptocurrency. I don't necessarily see the benefits of that. I think digitization of current cash by by a state or government would be amazing because right now the, the, the it's just cash, right? Or, or you have to go into the banking segment. So if there was some government-run system where you could easily move cash around without transaction fees, that would be amazing because it would cut out a bunch of the middlemen and make everything cheaper and faster. So that, that would be cool. I don't really... If it's going to be run and regulated by the state um, or by a government, I don't necessarily see the reason why they need to do a cryptocurrency. Because cryptocurrency, the reason cryptocurrencies exist is because they're decentralized and they make these things censorship, censorship resi- uh, resistant and also kind of help distribute trust. Um, they make it trustless, so you don't have to trust anybody. In this equation, if it's a, if it's a government issued and run currency, there's just inherent trust there. So. The, the kind of advantages of cryptocurrency go away and you don't need that. Cryptocurrency inserts inefficiencies by distributing it um, in order to try and get that trustlessness. So a state just doing a cryptocurrency would just be making something that could be way more efficient, less efficient. So it doesn't make sense. But I would love to see like a, a country, um, you know, I think Australia would be really well primed for this based on the, the, the relatively small population, is to have something, um, a system whereby money is, is digitized. We'll see. I think what's interesting is it will get, as you said, a lot of pushback from libertarians and, and, and people that are kind of anti-state, which honestly, you know, you mentioned my quote earlier about libertarian bros. I think they make up a huge chunk of, of the cryptocurrency space, these people who are, who are rabidly anti-state and, and anti-regulation. So I, countries that are thinking of doing this um, probably aren't going to get a lot of favor or, or uh, positive feedback from the cryptocurrency space as it stands today. But I'm actually uh, a fan of it if, it if it helps average people get money in their pockets. I think one of the, the one of the populations um, or the chief population that's left out by all of cryptocurrency right now are, are marginalized communities and, and people that are, uh, you know, lower income, um, I think. Cryptocurrency, by its very nature of requiring access to electricity and a computer or a device that's able to connect to the network, um, is already very self-limiting in terms of the populations or demographics it can reach. And so, what I would like to see is if a current, if a country was to um, go about having a digital cash system, that it would they'd focus primarily on putting it in the hands of those that um, you know can't afford access to cryptocurrency right now. And I think that would be amazing, right? Like, especially um, in, in cases of like social welfare and, and distribution of, um, you know, basic income um, to those people. I think a, a digital currency system would be better than having to hand out checks or um, token, you know, paper tokens or cash. Of course, in Africa, they've been using mobile phones very successfully via text. I think the M-Pesa in Kenya 
Um, yep. You know, simple technology, when I say simple, sort of, you know, not, you don't need smartphones or, or, or very high bandwidth networks mm-hmm. to, to actually facilitate exchange. I'm not sure if you're aware that the Australian banking system has announced that very soon there's going to be real-time money transfers between all banks. Um, nice. Which they've, they've been, just done that. They've just done this here, that here in uh, in the U.S. I forget the name. I think it's called Zelle. They right. have over here. Um, but it was an alliance of the banks that did something very similar to that. So if you're in any of your mobile banking apps over here, you can easily transfer between certain participating banks without any fees. So yeah, they've been working on that for a while, and um, you can just imagine all these legacy systems and how they've had to um, mm-hmm. rework them. But that obviously will go some way to helping out things. Of course, Australia and and America have you know sovereign stability, but if you look at places like um, you know Venezuela and um, you know even China, I mean the cryptocurrencies have, have provided a huge boon, and they are doing a much better job at that component of trust than their national governments are doing. So people are actually trusting those cryptos more than they are for the governments, which are you know a huge amount of instability, hyperinflation, etc. That they're actually rather willing to wear the the risk of the cryptos than the risk of their own sovereign risk where they are. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think. Um the, the real kind of test, I think, for cryptocurrency, if it's going to in any way displace traditional fiat currency uh, or government-issued currency, I should say, uh, is, is if it can be a standalone store of value in, in, in an economy. And I think that'll be interesting to see if it happens. I think I have also heard things about Venezuela. Um, I think the challenge there is that if you can't buy food and shelter with cryptocurrency, then it's still a problem. Um, and so, but maybe you can, right? I think there needs to be a big enough marketplace of buyers and sellers using using that cryptocurrency, regardless of its, its exchange rate to Venezuelan fiat currency, for it to kind of bootstrap and, and be the accepted medium of exchange. That probably won't happen in, in a country like the US or Australia, where there's, as you said, a lot more sovereign stability and a lot more trust in the, in the state as it stands. Because until the people that you know run the fruit shop down the road and your landlord start accepting cryptocurrency, fiat currency or government issued currency is going to work just what just fine for you. Especially if banks are enabling real real time transaction uh, free fee free uh, services like you just mentioned. I mean, vendors accepting crypto or Bitcoin could start happening, and it could st- and when it starts happening, it could start happening really really quickly. Right, because this network effect, when sure. it reaches a critical mass, it could just could just tip over incredibly quickly. Yeah, it could. I think it's an interesting argument that the, you know, we saw a huge surge in, in vendor acceptance of Bitcoin back in uh, I think 2013, 2014. I think we're actually at kind of an all-time low in terms of vendor adoption because most of those merchants that started accepting it have since stopped accepting it the it's it's challenging when you're in a bubble and a run up in terms of price because we we have to admit that bitcoin and cryptocurrency right now is extremely volatile right and the challenge when you you're in this this marketplace of, of buyers and sellers or merchants and consumers is say you're you know an average joe and you you want to go and pay for a coffee with cryptocurrency if if the three dollars that you're spending on a coffee today could be worth six dollars tomorrow because of the volatility in the market, the incentives aren't really there for you to go and spend Bitcoin on doing that, right? Because it, it, it's opportunity cost. 
On the flip side, from a merchant's perspective, I don't want to sell something for $1,000 worth of Bitcoin if the market could crash tomorrow and I could lose half of that and only have $500 for the same amount of Bitcoin and potentially not cover my cost of goods sold. So volatile markets, you know, and I think it's it's a fairly objective opinion that, that cryptocurrency is volatile right now. Bitcoin goes up and down by hundreds and, you know, sometimes thousands of dollars week on week. Volatile markets like that are not a good space for merchants to, to participate, nor consumers, because the incentives just aren't there. That's where a stable coin, like, um, you know, a fiat currency, uh, you know, unless you're in a, you know, a hyperinflated uh, area like Venezuela, are important. So I don't know. I, I think it's going to be challenging for that adoption to happen while we are in this place where your Bitcoin worth could double or half tomorrow. In tandem to that, these networks have extremely high transaction fees comparable to traditional systems. So in Bitcoin, you're going to pay at least $2 right now per transaction. So say I was going to go down to my Starbucks and, and buy a $3 coffee. Regardless, it would cost me $2 in a transaction. So it would actually cost me $5 for that coffee. That's far higher than any credit card that you're going to go and get right now. Even on Ethereum, that transaction fee is going to be around 20 or $0.30. Cents. So I don't see how that's in any way more efficient than the existing systems. And when I like to think about these systems, it's not about whether I believe in the technology or not. It's whether I think the incentives are aligned, the kind of economic incentives. And based on those two things that I just mentioned, the volatility and the transaction cost right now, from a consumer or a merchant perspective, there's just where are the incentives for me to adopt this for my day to day? I think what I find interesting, though, on the, the bigger trend of the, the nation states and the, the weakening of the nation states and how blockchain can be starting to do some of the, the, the tasks of that trust that previously nation states performed and, and for example, other, other technological developments which in previous years only the nation states had the power to get involved with. Now, these days, private enterprise is doing a far better job. For example, public transport, you look at Uber. Right, it's doing a far better job at uh, re removing friction from transport than any government has. Um, you look at South Australia, where Elon Musk is getting involved in the power in South Australia to sort out their mm -hmm. power issues. So I'm interested also in crypto as this this trend to that the the, the nation states and the role that it plays. Um, you know, and even going back some time in terms of our traditional enemies of not being, uh, moving away from being non-nation states to being these, you know, non-nation state type of terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda, etc. So from that philosophical political economy level, I find some of the developments in crypto quite interesting as well. Yeah, you're right. I, I think it's interesting. I think the the challenge there is, so I, I, I kind of personally believe that nation states need to exist, but the libertarians obviously do not. I think one thing that, that cryptocurrency and, and libertarian viewpoints kind of ignore, and, and this is what I was trying to get at earlier with, with talking about marginalized communities and, and lower economic, people of lower economic status, is that unfortunately when industry comes in and starts fulfilling the role of, of things that were traditionally public sector, they usually favor those who already have a high amount of capital or, or some capital. So what I mean by that is essentially, you know, 
privatized systems typically favor the rich. And I think you can see this through, you know, look at the privatization of healthcare in America and where that's led. I think that's that's obviously something that you don't want to happen in Australia because public health care is amazing. But I think it, the same can be said for things like Uber, right, for example. Uber has revo- revolutionized the way that people revolutionize public transport, but only for the segment of, of the population that have enough money to be able to afford to take an Uber. Uber is not cheap. And, you know, Uber, Lyft, whatever ride sharing company you're using, you're going to pay a premium. And they've gotten most people in with kind of a bait and switch where they started off cheap, but now they've been increasing the prices. And I, I actually just commented today on Twitter that just to get across, you know, a few miles in San Francisco, it cost me $16 today in an Uber, um, which is just, it was $4 maybe a year or two ago. But and so I think... That's where, sorry to interrupt you, but that's where I totally take your point. The privatization is definitely not the answer, and it's certainly problematic, especially with goods which I deem not normal, such as transport, healthcare, property. But that's where blockchain is so interesting because it's an, it's an open source platform. Um, it is. No, it, it absolutely is. I think the, the challenge, um, you know, privatization is, is, is similar, you know, to kind of having individual liberty, right? That's what people often say is it's about looking out for yourself. Um, and I think that's the problem with, you know, even decentralization um, is that because it's trustless in, in nature, it does not foster community, it does not foster collaboration, and it does not foster, you know, the support of people that aren't able to access that technology. And so that's that that's one of the fears I have about things like Bitcoin and other other things is that if you start to decentralize and rely on the technology to do all these things, you know, pieces of government, like you said, if you go into healthcare, if you go into health health insurance or banking or any of this stuff, there's nobody it's, it's cool to get away from having the nation state. You know, you might be like, yay, we're independent. But at the same time, unless you and a bunch of other people that are on that system are actively looking out for the people at the bottom, then those people might get left behind. And, and that's my real concern is that ultimately these systems, which uh, decentralization is a form of privatization, right? Because it makes, it, it makes people care mostly about themselves and their own security and, and capital. And so by virtue of that, there's, without a nation state, there's nobody looking out for, you know, the homeless population or, or anybody that doesn't have access to that technology. So I think it is a very delicate balance, right? I think it's just like we privatized, you know, Uber and now it's getting super expensive and, you know, mo- it, that's actually blocking a lot of people from being able to use it. It would be sad to see that happen to other parts of the system. And so I think decentralization needs to actually, you know, somebody I was talking to recently about how decentralization is kind of the polar end of the spectrum, whereas nation state is the other polar end of the spectrum. And there needs to be a middle ground where community is fostered within cryptocurrency. I think this is why cryptocurrency has actually had such combatant politics is because there is no, there is nothing intrinsically within cryptocurrency or Bitcoin that makes people want to band together for the greater good. And so I think that should try and be built into cryptocurrency protocols so we don't end up in a position where everybody's just looking out for themselves um, and not caring about one another. 
which leads me to believe there's probably room for another altcoin which uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't get me started <laughs> has has that at its core where where us that are interested in using tech for the enablement of a of, of a better world and and alternatives can uh, somehow factor that into the if anything even the spirit of it which which i guess in fairness you did a lot of that with dogecoin and the dogecoin foundation etc right yeah yeah and that's what we were trying to do like dogecoin started out as a as a joke really a, a joke t- taking a jab at the the greed um the, the the personal greed of people in cryptocurrency and so um from a very early point we said well this joke is going to become a real thing that we need to make sure it doesn't it doesn't essentially become what the joke was about. Um, and so, you know, we started doing a lot of charity drives and trying to foster a positive community where people were encouraged to work together rather than work apart. And, you know, I, I think it worked for a while there. Eventually, kind of the greed got its, you know, kind of uh, hooks into it. And, you know, Dogecoin kind of went the way of people just care about its price now and they're trying to use it to speculate. But I think there is room in the space for that kind of development. And I think we're going to eventually, like, I don't think this is something people will forget about. I think it's something that people are going to eventually just have to realize because they'll start saying, oh, we've actually forgotten about, you know, community. What happened to that? Yeah, it's going to, it's going to be needed in the future. So maybe there will be an altcoin or something completely different. Jackson, just before we end up, I know we've gone way over time, but uh, sentiment in the Bay Area at the moment about the states, about the world. Um, obviously, the Bay Area is is one of the most, quote-unquote, uh, liberal parts of the states, even though uh, Peter Thiel, who's uh, is, is a um, card-carrying supporter of um, Donald Trump. What's the general <laughs> sentiment of both the tech industry, of the outlook of the states? I mean, in Australia... Uh, it, you know, there's a lot of a lot of pessimism, I would say, and a lot of confusion. Um, what's it like on the ground on your end? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think California and, and San Francisco, being a, a, a historically liberal place, has kind of transformed. Things have feel very different over the last twelve months than they did previously. I think. One thing that's happened is that America has become a lot more polarized um, as a result of kind of administration changes and stuff like that. So what I've actually witnessed be the most interesting is in the tech space, people kind of being more outspoken or caring more about what they stand for. And I think I think that's super important. I think historically people in America, people are extremely political, correct, politically correct and and not politically correct, but they don't they like to not bring up politics because people in America are typically conflict averse. And so I think this last year has been people finally starting to realize that um, if you're going to build a better society, then you need to be upfront about what what you believe in. Um, and so that's been very interesting to watch. I think it's also shown though that identity and, and, and politics in general is a um, definitely a spectrum. And um, I think over the last, you know, we saw what happened with that guy at Google, James Damore. Um, I think people in, in the tech space have started to realize, oh, wow, tech isn't this, you know, liberal paradise of, you know, non-sexists, non-racists. I think it's, um, we've started to realize that, oh my gosh, it, there's actually people amongst us that um, we might not have known had certain beliefs. So it's been very interesting to see, watch that evolve. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're in for another, hopefully only three more years of it. But um, 
it's it's been interesting. I think I think actually that has driven a lot of the kind of cryptocurrency and decentralized tech um, interest as well, because people are like, well, if we want to get away from a nation state or we want to be, um, you know, I think when all that hacking stuff went down last year, people really took a hard look at their security and they're like, okay, we should be using end-to-end encrypted messaging, taking care of our passwords, like data and information is the new gold. And um, I think it's really kind of ramped up um, in people caring more about understanding technology, which I find good because I think a lot of people don't ever really want to know, like when I send an instant message to somebody, what happens? Um, and is that secure? Can somebody spy on me? So in, in a way, I think people have just become, I wouldn't say pessimistic. Um, I would say people have become more vigilant. And I think that's ultimately a good thing because I think people are starting to learn and transform more than they were. I think when you're in a in a, in a, in a place like, you know, um, like we were previously for the previous eight years in America, people became slightly complacent. And um, this, I think, has been a big wake up call. And so it's actually been good from like a privacy and infosec kind of area in tech. It, it's helped bring about awareness and, and um, people wanting to understand how to do stuff online. So that's good. And, and of course, San Francisco, I find a, a great symbol of the, the dichotomy of America because you have, you have the best of the best minds and businesses. And, yes, and yet you have a lot of incredibly unhappy, unhealthy people living on the streets and they're literally side by side. I mean, you have the Twitter building and, and, mm-hmm. and you have five minutes walk away, you have 10 cities of people living in tents on the streets. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable, particularly for Australians. Uh, oh, I know. Yeah. I think um, it's shocking when you first come here from a country that doesn't have um, anywhere near the kind of like social welfare problem that America does. It's, it is very striking. And I think it's testament to, you know, what I was saying about complacency, I think complacency, and then also just naivety. And when you go like, like I was saying about privatization, you know, privatization and decentralization in America has essentially led to people only caring about themselves, right? That is kind of the the capitalist American dream model, right? Like I care about being rich and having a house and that. But um, when everything's going your way um, and you think you're changing the world positively through technology, right? So people that work at Google and Facebook and all these companies, um, they're like, yeah, I'm making a difference. I'm making lots of money. This is great. I think what happens is what I was mentioning earlier is that people forget about the other people that are surrounding them. They forget about the people that they are potentially displacing by through their actions, right? Because their social circle might be all good because they're all making money as well. It's great. But um, as you said, you know, right outside the Twitter building, there's people that, you know, are struggling to find, you know, shelter. So, yeah, I think it's one of those things where you need to stop being complacent. And especially if we're going to go down further down this road of um, owning your own data and, and, you know, using decentralized technology instead of relying on a government to do it for you, um, you need to make sure that the people that, you know, potentially unable to look after themselves right now are looked after. So who does that? Um, yeah, but I think the good news is, as I said, trying to be an optimist here, the, the the changes that have taken place recently have made people be more vigilant about that and understand that. So I think um, at the end of the day, hopefully it results in action that kind of turns that around. It's shaken the tree, right? And, it has shaken uh, the tree, which is good. I think people needed a wake-up call. Yeah, And Bush, Bush gave us Obama. 
So uh, hopefully Trump will will give us someone um, just as <laughs> <laughs> uh, no no crossed. secrets where my political leanings lie. Anyway, Jackson <laughs> Jackson Palmer, the creator of Dogecoin, ex Australian or current Australian in San Francisco, Still an Australian, yeah, <laughs> uh, Australian in San Francisco. Um, that was a fascinating chat. Thank you so much for your time. We'll put a link to the New York Times article as well as your YouTube series for people that want to learn about crypto and blockchain. It's really worth learning about it's a they they slippery concepts that are that are tricky to get your head around so um, have a look at jackson's work and uh, thanks so much for joining us absolutely thanks kevin thanks for having me